Spoiler onslaught going forward. Abandon all pretenses, ye who enter here. Ho 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 ho! Merry Christmas! Welcome everyone to a very Tomodachi Christmas special. Starring Hipster Snack as Hipster Snack. Clockwork as that creepy uncle you sometimes bring over, and Titaku as that lovable guy who lives next door, and Chloe as herself. Much like our Halloween episode, we each selected four movies. This time they were Christmas movies. Um, we each put forward one that we wanted to watch, and we went through all of them. So our list today, we have A Christmas Story, which was Dotaku's choice, Scrooged, which was my choice, Muppets Christmas Carol, which was the Hipster Snacks choice, and Die Hard, which was Clockwork's choice. Which is arguably the best Christmas movie. <laughs> Somewhat debate if it's a Christmas movie. I think it's a Christmas I mean, movie. I, well, I'll say this. You know how there's that battle between Snack and myself over whether or not, you know, Pineapple on pizza is a good thing. I've I've discovered oh, whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie is just as divisive. I I'm personally fine with it, but man, there are some people who get mad. Really I have a, a friend mad. of mine who literally um, but he didn't get mad about it. He was like, "Oh, I, I would argue if it. Yes, it happens at Christmas, but is it about Christmas? You know, it's it's not. D- does that differentiation even? That's a matter? good question too, though. <laughs> The entire reason why John McClane is there is because of a Christmas party. Uh, I'd say yes. And to go see his family for Christmas. I mean, of course, everything happens in the movie, which we'll get to here in a minute. But it's all it all has to do around the theme of a Christmas of of the Christmas theme. The ending song is a Christmas song. (laughs) And dare we say it? He John McClane wins because of a Christmas miracle, because of the gift he gave to his that his wife got from his from her boss. That ultimately she has to give up in order to save him and herself and also their kids. But, I mean, Alan Rickman gets the gift of a long drop and oh, he yeah. sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all about giving. I mean, I don't think she had much choice in giving it up. Um, I think she was like, oh, God, what's happening? And the, No, she uh, kind of drops. She drops Hans Gruber like a bad habit. So I'm Very just saying. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it starts because of Christmas. It proceeds because of Christmas, and now he has a machine gun. Yeah, I know. For those who haven't seen Die Hard, you should, about where you been, first off. (laughs) Law of averages dictates there's someone out there watching right now that has never seen Die Hard. Also, I mean, there's a lot of of younger younger folks who probably have never heard of it because, uh, well... It's a it's a rated R oh, action that, movie, that's and that's true. that's a that's that's foreboding now. That's foreboding. It's everything's PG thirteen. Everything's PG thirteen. <laughs> and it's like you couldn't do a PG thirteen Die Hard. Yeah, this is still very much a an R movie because I noticed. Like I, I went back and was looking at some. If you could look back at some R movies of of this sort of era, the, it, it kind of begs the question of whether like the R rating would still stand like in modern, like today, but this one's still definitely an R. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, that the, the toplessness in the very beginning, uh, the, the, just the fact that they show um, Hiroshi, the, uh, Holly's boss, get, literally get her his brain blown out all over oh, the yeah. wall. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say, in that scene, he literally said the worst thing that would do him the least amount of good in that setting. Well, he I mean, kind of should have predicted that that was not going to pan out in his favor. You know, although to be perfectly honest, going back to what you were saying, Cog, at least in that instance, uh, if we're going by the home, uh, the home star rules, that would be a double R rated film because it actually, the bullet passes <laughs> through his head and then off the oh, other yes. side and you actually <laughs> see it. So it's a, yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. But um, I guess we're doing Die Hard first. So I guess we're doing Die Hard first. That seems like where we're going. <laughs> uh, we are. We are. Yes. Okay. Okay. So um, can I just say? Can I just say though? Uh, first off, that uh, I think it's funny that even though John McClane gets the first kill, he gets the first kill via yes. OSHA compliance stairwell. <laughs> he does. Uh, he That's does. True. He does. <laughs> That's true. Uh, it's like, I, and actually, it's funny because Snack and I were like looking at the film. I'm like, man, Hans Gruber's group would be up like perfect for a bunch of Shadowrunners. And then it's like, and then the first guy gets killed with the stairs. I'm like, ooh, no, no, you're right. This is perfect. <laughs> 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 uh, man, never, ever trust yourself in OSHA compliance stairwells. You, you just cannot trust <laughs> <Nope>. them. <laughs> So this was my movie of choice was Die Hard. I mainly chose it because of the meme. Is it a Christmas movie? Is it not a Christmas movie? It is still a hot debate in trench and um in the trenches of warfare of Christmas movies for some reason. Uh I chose it mainly because out of all the movies, this is the most action y and you can always do a little bit of action during Christmas time. Cause uh because who wouldn't want a little bit of action during Christmas time? I uh I did not know, as we were pointing out even before recording, is that this was Alan Rickman's first film, if I remember correctly. And I was actually taken a surprise that it was. It is. As I was like, oh wait, like who is? I had to actually stop the movie, look it up. So I'm like, I know who this is, and I saw it. Is it Alan Rickman? Uh, was it 19? When was this? When was this done? 1988. And it was his, his first cat. Like, oh, wow. That is insane. I, I don't know why they ever put two and two together until we started actually doing this. Yeah. This is the film that made him. Although uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, the ladies and gentlemen that are listening to this probably would, you know, know him more as the role he would take on later as Professor Severus Snape. Because Harry Potter is a juggernaut. That, that always kills me is seeing him in Die Hard. And then I, 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 I remember him from the movie, the Tim Allen movie, Galaxy Quest, too, where he's like, ah, oh, damn it. I used to be an actor once. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was in My that, too. hammer, you shall be avenged. I completely forgot that. Yeah, he was the not Leonard Nimoy in that one. Yeah, that's another good one. We should watch that one later. Snack and I actually had a bunch of other movies that were like, man, we need to watch this, like uh, RoboCop and like, um, ah, what was it, like Dirty Harry and stuff like that. I'm like, ah, man, there's too many of them. <sighs> but yeah, no, um, so that so we can get the TLDR, TLDW, Too Long Didn't Watch, out of the way. This all uh, starts with a uh, NYPD detective, Mr. John McClane, going over from New York to L.A. in California in order to visit with his wife because she invited him to a Christmas party. She is now part of the Nakatomi Corporation, and she's doing quite well for herself. Uh, it's also important to note that, yes, this is in 1988, because John McClane is flying around on an airplane, commercial airlines, 
absolutely strapped. And uh, that's not something you can do now, by the way. Don't do that. You'll, you'll get arrested. It's it's not like big things, but it's really little things that's just like, man, this movie could not be made today. Like the fact that they have the uh, the one bit where the um, her and her pregnant friend, Holly and her pregnant friend are like, you know, drinking with their boss. And they're like, oh, do you think that you could have a you think you could have a little drink? And she's like, oh, baby's ready to tend bar. I'm like, whoo, <laughs> you couldn't do that now. But it's a it's a lot of little things like that, like the fact that the limo, you know, the the limo driver uh, boasts that the uh, their limo has a car phone. It's like, okay, I mean, I have a phone right here, but all right. Cell phones aren't aren't in vogue yet. And uh, while they're in the uh, Christmas party in the Nakatomi building, uh, the Nakatomi building gets attacked by a bunch of European uh, terrorists slash kum thieves who are trying to steal things from the Nakatomi vault, basically to rob it blind. And Hans Gruber and his European terrorists, cum thieves, proceed to uh, take everyone hostage and are trying to, you know, rob the place blind. However, they do not, they do not, you know, realize that while in the building, there's also another person in the building, Mr. McLean. And Mr. McLean is resourceful. He has a gun. And later on, he has a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. And that's uh, pretty much the plot. It's a cat and mouse game between Hans Gruber and his goons and uh, Mr. McLean. Is that uh, is that fair to say, gentlemen? That, that sounds right. Yeah, about 12 of them and one main character and never enough shoes. I think he says the first pair of shoes he tries to grab, he says he finds the one guy that has feet smaller than his wife. <laughs> Which I found hilarious. Well, at least they don't have all of the quotable lines on the thing. So you get to see those. And man, is this film quotable. I mean, yippee mother. I mean, come on. And that doesn't count because that was a quote. All right. I don't I don't go to bad word jail because of that. I, I just want to point that out. <laughs> Especially since both Bruce Wills and Alan Rickman both say it. It's important to notice, too. Uh, it's in because this this film also kind of made Bruce Willis. Uh, before this, he was in uh, what? Uh, Moonlighting. And he was. Oh, there's there's three sequels after this. <laughs> yeah. So he was he was a cop in Moonlighting and he was doing like beer commercials, I want to say. So, you know, it's kind of this weird thing where it's like this guy who's mostly a TV actor then becomes the main lead for a, a big budget action movie like this. And I mean, he kind of blows yeah, it out of the park. Other ones, the other big ones didn't start showing up until later. Because like, yeah, the, um, Die Hard definitely like was one of the big elements that launched his career. Yeah, he came off the uh, set of Moonlighting. It's also important to notice that Moonlighting is where we get the excuse me, princess line from. So all you uh, all you babies who still think that's funny. Yeah, you can thank Bruce Willis for that. He get, comes up with a, kind of di- a couple different ways of figuring stuff out. Like his first thing was like, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap. I don't want to. Do- How do I do this? Oh, I'll pull a fire alarm. That'll, you know, most places have fire alarms that automatically call emergency and stuff like that nowadays. So he does that. But of course, the, the terrorists have a have a out for that. All they, uh, all they do is make a quick phone call all and everything. And then that gets shut down. The only time they actually start getting people down in the movie or the cops actually come to the movie is when, um, is when, uh, Bruce Willis throws the dude off the, uh, 
off the tower onto the guy's car going, hey, there's terrorists here. Send help. <laughs> and then, you know, Officer McLean decides that having been put in this position, the only answer is to deal with the problem yourself. And indeed does. <laughs> well, he gets help. He gets help. Yeah, he throws the dead body down, and then they open fire on the cop, and he's just like, okay, it's not a prank. This is actually happening. I'm sorry if I don't understand physics or anything that much, but, I mean, he's the cop saw the flashing light on top of the roof. Would the sound of a gunfire not resonate from that high up? Or is or maybe because he was that far away? That depends somewhat on conditions. Um, it is possible that he couldn't overhear it. And he also wasn't being completely silent the entire time we see Al going to and from his car. He's like singing to himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that probably mm-hmm. helped muzzle what could be written off as fireworks or any other number of things. I mean, remember this is set in LA. That's true. And on top of that, I, I learned something with that sequence. Apparently, because he was buying Twinkies and I thought they were jelly donuts and I called them jelly donuts. And so then Snack had to tell me that apparently Twinkies originally were actually, uh, they were portable strawberry shortcakes. So now we have the jelly Twinkies thing. That, and that was kind of just a thing he and I were banding back at each other. Uh, the, the retail guy was saying, he's like, I thought cops only ate donuts. And then, then, then uh, I don't remember his name, but the sergeant's like, like nope. Yeah, he just kind of shrugs it off and, and gets him his, his Twinkies. And uh, yeah, they were little portable strawberry shortcakes. And then World War II happened, and strawberries were one of the items put on ration. So they just like, nuts to it, we'll just sell the little snack cake as is. And then they were more popular without the strawberries, and the modern Twinkie was born. Oh, no, Thank I you, Professor. Say, um, seeing Reginald Val Johnson... In this, as Sergeant Al Powell, he's the police buddy that is talking to McLean outside. Uh, he still is like the. It's funny seeing him also being cast as a police officer in Die Hard, knowing that he's also the police officer and the father on Family Matters. And he's basically like the channeling everybody's thoughts with the annoying police officer, where he's just like calling it before everything happens yeah, that's that was some of my my favorite moment he's like it was like they're shooting at the lights and then boom boom boom, boom. it's like oh they're shooting at the lights <laughs> you know just just the the little cues with him were great the the only thing i had that i thought was a little was a little weird um in essence was the the kid in the limousine or the dude in the limousine like he drives like he he has that kind of part where he's driving He's driving McLean, you know, to like the air or from the airport to the to the party and everything. And then he kind of hangs out just in case everything doesn't work out. Out And then McLean calls him and says, like, you know, hey, we're still trying to figure this out. And then he cuts the line off. That's when the terrorists are showing up to attack, which is um, which, you know, he's ended up staying there anyways because he figured he'd call back if he needs him. But he stays there for an extremely long time without hearing anything. Especially as he's listening to the news, he hears like a tear sack and everything's happening and he stays there. But like the entire literally, he's pretty much set up this entire time for that one scene where he runs into the the phony uh, ambulance, which is 
really weird. Uh, <laughs> I know. I just like he was kind of like I was like, why, why is he still there? It doesn't. I don't really understand what's going on. I mean, he understand he's like a bystander listening. He's by, he's a bystander listening to the. Are everything, you talking about the, like, the driver at the very beginning? The driver, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, they he was locked into the parking lot. They did close the gates. They they. Yeah, they they uh, did show a quick early. scene too, where he was like blasting. He was like on the phone or something too, and like blasting music and whatnot. So he like because because there was that scene where McLean was like, "Oh, please be sit, please tell me you heard the shots and are calling the police." He's like mm-hmm. praying that like he he heard the shots and is going to call the police. But then they show him and he's just like hanging out. I think by him getting locked in, that's actually a fair point. I, I don't have a lot of <laughs> real criticism to this movie. I think it still holds up. It's still like a seriously just fun, entertaining action movie. It is. I mean, I, I found it a little bit difficult to keep track of who was who in terms of the uh, the the thieves cum terrorists because they're all just kind of like generic, you know, guys with guns. But uh, they, they, I mean, they they do their part, you know, reasonably well. And uh, it is pretty cool how, like, Hans has pretty much thought out everything except for McLean Everything down to, like, the fire alarms and everything. You know, you notice that when he's like, okay, so the fire alarms went off and he immediately gives them, like, instructions, like, say this, this, and then deactivate the system. Like, he knows he's so, like, on point with everything. (laughs) He's very uh, professional. You can tell professional terrorists for for the whole movie. Yeah, terrorist air quotes, and air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't really remember hardly any of the music, but I mean, that's because I was so invested in like, oh man, you know, I haven't seen this movie in a long time. How's he going to get out of this one with, uh, you know, John McClane? Which but, is interesting because it was actually, um, I think it was Danny Elfman that scored it. <laughs> it. It seems like there's like three three movie music guys and like he's, he's one he's of them. He's definitely one of them. And then it was like Johan. I mean, a lot of the film was actually like Christmas tunes. If you notice, like you can hear like little. That's this is where I would say it is probably a Christmas movie because because a lot of the music you will hear is Christmas music. Yeah, and like I said, uh, Al was like humming different Christmas carols all throughout the film. I'd argue it is just because the impetus for it is entirely holiday related. It's because uh, McLean got invited by accident to a holiday party, and so. You know, the he would not the impetus for the inciting incident wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the it being in the holidays. Oh, so and, and I mean, in the, oh, if you want to even go into like the themes of the movie, the, the entire themes of the movie is, you know, realizing what's important in your life. It's your family and, you know, keeping them safe. John and Holly get back together at the end because of the events of the movie. I mean, people had to die, but, you know, yeah. Sometimes, you know, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And then the sergeant protects McLean and uh, Holly by, as he was telling the sad story about how he accidentally shot a kid. He would never pull his gun again, so he ended up becoming a desk jockey. He ends up uh, pulling his gun out and protecting Holly and McLean when uh, one, when, uh, one of the uh, bad guys who was, you thought was dead came back with the with the, the assault rifle and was about to shoot them down. He pulls his gun and blows them away to protect them. When he said he was never going to do that again. Yep. Now, here's food for thought. The wife is named Holly, as in Christmas Holly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ta-da. Oh, that's Good true. Job. Hollywood. Uh, now it is. It is, in fact, a holiday movie. It is a Christmas mm. movie. Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la. <laughs> you have gotten the final verdict from the Tomodachi Bros here. We say Die Hard is, in fact, a Christmas movie. It is Tomodachi Christmas approved. <laughs> so, yeah, it's this is this is unanimous. The one thing I want to put out, though, is the one thing that really catches me as well is the uh, McLean's uh, wit, how he goes through the building, goes through, you know, the 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 duct and or like he kind of goes through a, duct. a lot of his ways of getting around um, getting around the terrace. A lot of the, uh, you know, the tact that he has to uh, to trick, try to trick them. And as he slowly takes them out one by one or two by two, depending on how many come after him. And really, really is really nice to see them just, you know, just brain dead action. It's a lot of choreography and tech to Absolutely. it, as they feel. Yeah, a lot of it, once again, it's because it's it's kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's a lot of practical stunts. This is back in 1988. You know, CGI is a thing that only like big, big, big movie budgets, you know, would have. And it's, it's a lot of practical effects a lot of choreography as you were saying so you have to be very careful as to how you frame shots and think you get creative because of that um that being said a lot of things that he does like messing around with like the elevators and like the elevator doors and the things you couldn't do anymore because a lot of that stuff is all entirely electrical and you can't really like mess with the mechanisms of the doors or like how far the elevator will go up or anything but i mean it's still it's really cool it's cool how he's able to, yeah, use his wit in order to get around and outsmart his enemies rather than, you know, oh, me, I'm John McLean, me, I'm Unga Bunga. Because ultimately, like, it seems like every single time he gets into, into a confrontation, I was just going to say, it's like the Europeans are stronger than John McLean is. They, they kick the crap out of him. I want to also point out uh, Gruber's uh, kind of wit as well. He wasn't playing like just, you know, like a generic terrorist he had a lot of thought about him as well. Like when they're when it's him and the other dude in the room, uh, he remembers that McLean doesn't have any shoes or anything, so he tells him to shoot all the glass on um, all the windows and everything. So it's really hard for him to move around without cutting himself, and he ends up escaping, cutting himself, uh, cutting his feet on the glass, trying to uh, get out of the room. And uh, when he sees uh, McLean, he catches him. He ends up putting on an accent to try to fool him and it ends up working. And when uh, and one of the reasons because he didn't have his gun, he left his gun, left his gun in the, the one uh, room above the roof or whatever, in a sense, you know, in a sense shows him that he, he can think on his feet a lot as well as same as uh, McLean. So is there anything else, gentlemen, that uh, I think we all really yeah, like this film? It's, it's great. It's definitely, uh, if you haven't seen it, Check it out. Absolutely. It is still worth watching to this day. And it's weird how even though some of it is like, oh, yeah, this is definitely 80s vintage. At the same time, there's something undeniably timeless about the themes and the fact that the media, uh, as are now, are the enemy of people. Weird, right? (laughs) Oh, are you talking about the part where they, they actually like dox McLean and like go to his kids. And so you have a bunch of reporters talking to like little five-year-olds being like, what do you want to tell your parents? And they're like, come home. It's like, wow. Okay. You guys are total scumbags. Also the fact that he goes up to the, the housekeeper and says he'll deport her if he doesn't get the interview with the kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A less than subtle uh, indication <laughs> that bureaucrats are the scum of the earth. <laughs> 
Yeah, actually, you were mentioning that before there, uh, Snick. How it's like this this movie, despite um, is very weirdly anti-government, and that even though yeah, it's it's the police officers fighting the uh, these terrorists slash uh, thieves, it's like all the FBI are a bunch of buffoons who are incompetent. The police chief is incompetent, and it's like it's all and that's kind of a theme you see in a lot of action films and this at time it's like ghostbusters had the same thing uh that was in robocop to a certain extent i don't know i just thought that was an interesting point you you see a very throughout the 80s you see a very anti-authoritarian the government is useless be ready to defend yourself kind of motif and even when they're not inept or outright the villain they're not usually very helpful in any other respect. Like the guys who are on the ground, the cops who are, who are already like on the beat have a better understanding of the situation are able to piece together the scenario faster than these stuffed shirts who come in. They're like, Oh yeah, we're in charge and we're just going to run the playbook. And inside Hans Gruber's like, yes, run the playbook. <laughs> See where it gets you. I'm just like, yeah. Cause they, he, he knows, he knows that, you know, and he knows that you're going to do this. And then it ultimately ends up helping the villain in every step of the way. <laughs> a lot of 80 movies uh, definitely had themes of uh, making sure that you are the first responder and ready to deal with a situation should it go down. Now, I'm not saying that you know you need a machine gun i'm saying you should probably have several just to be safe because that way when run runs out you have a spare oh i thought this was going to be a wizard situation i can't find my machine gun i'll just leave a few around <laughs> i'll just leave several hundred randomly lying around so the one the scene i think emphasizes the most and i think snack was just talking about it in a, in a sense but i feel like it needs to be emphasized a bit more just for more contact is that they're trying to break into a vault. They get to the last lock of the vault, which has to have the power be cut, which they cannot physically do from inside the building. But because uh, Gruber knows exactly the playbook of the FBI, uh, he knows that they're going to cut the power to the building, even if it's going to cut power to what was like 20 square blocks of people inside in that area. Uh, and it's going to deactivate the lock. So they literally play into his hands because they're all just doing it, as he says, by the book, mm -hmm. <laughs> which gets them to their goal, which is close to the end of the movie where they get stopped. Yep, yep, yep. I agree. All right, gents. So that's Die Hard. Thoroughly recommended. And we have all, I believe it's unanimous that it is a Christmas film. The next thing on uh, the chopping block is, is pineapple on pizza good or not? Mm -hmm. Yep. Just kidding. All right. Anyways, um... It is now Muppet Christmas Carol. Absolutely. Oh, this is another good one. Uh, so this was Mr. Snack's pick. So, Professor, why don't you give us the TLDW? Uh, it's literally a Christmas Carol. But this was actually one of the versions that sticks weirdly close to the original novel. Uh, there are, of course, differences, chief among those being the whole ignorance and want thing. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, read a book because it's actually a very good book with a lot of very interesting imagery. Uh, did you really want to have Muppets of two starving children hanging on to Ghosts of Christmas Present? I'm just saying. Literally hanging on to the present. Literally ignorance and want personified, clinging to the present. This is about the... 
that these metaphors are as subtle as Dutaku's. <laughs> this is about as straightforward as it gets. Wow, that cuts me deeper than I care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Michael Caine, uh, who plays a magnificent Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, he's great, yeah. We have our uh, leading narrator, Gonzo, or um, excuse me, the great Charles Dickens and his assistant Rizzo, who narrate the story for us as an omniscient third-person narrator, which is weird as it's presented in second-person narration, but no one seems to see that they're actually there, so that's <laughs> different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have uh, a Kermit the Frog as one Bob Cratchit mm-hmm. and accompanying family, including Robin as Tiny Tim. And not only... Is this a very faithful representation of the Christmas Carol story? They do some things that are just absolutely delightful. Uh, the character who in the original novel was named Fezowig became Fozziewig. And I just, that always puts a smile on my face. That pun is so subtle and so simple and yet so perfectly beautiful in execution. I, yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I love A Christmas Carol as a story, but the fact that the Muppets actually kind of steered into how, how much of like a horror story it is. And that's kind of something that's a shame because, uh, for instance, in the original book, the uh, ghost of Christmas past is basically this very small child except it has its head is basically a wreath of flame where its head is constantly, its face is constantly changing in the fire. And uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but that's not, that's less like I'm a tiny little child and more like get down on your knees because it's, this is an angel of God come down to judge you yeah. type of thing. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, they're, they're ghosts. They're supposed to be spooky. And yet, most adaptations are like, oh, ho, 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 we're the ghosts of Christmas, and we're here to help you, Ebenezer. Oh, ho, 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 ho. No, I was just going to say they're, they're they're literally trying to scare him straight, and most fail in that regard. So I think it's interesting because in this version, the ghost of the past is this really weird, like ethereal being who looks almost like a doll, but is very much like moving around. The effect done for it is really good too. I would I would attest more of it. It's it's like the ghost version of like a doll slash small child that I think they were trying to go for, which I believe is closer to what you were about from in in the books, um, which was also in itself pretty creepy as well. Oh, uh, but also uh, in a way artsy and such. So, but yeah, I, I feel like it. It really did get kind of its point across. Uh, it did get its point across in that regard. I actually quite like the way they presented the Ghost of Christmas Present, which is something that um, I, I didn't really feel in the other Christmas Carol adaptation we saw. I, I kind of raised my eyebrows at that, but I really liked how jolly and just like, oh, ho, ho, know me better, man. You know? Was he puppeted or was was that a suit? I couldn't actually tell through half of the. There is an actor in the suit. The head is remotely animatronic the way the Ninja Turtles are, uh, where basically there's someone off screen moving the mouth. So the the mouth and the face are fully animated, but there's actually a guy inside the suit. If you actually watch the uh, outtakes, 
there's um, one where while the puppet is dancing, he ends up bumping Michael Caine. And <laughs> it's, it's actually very cute because he, he's being very apologetic when it happens and Michael Caine starts laughing. Yeah, they, they have a few uh, characters that are like that. If you're a kind of an OG Muppets fan, uh, Sweetums is the same way as are uh, if you're about, you know, our age, I guess the uh, 19 early 90s uh, sitcom, The Dinosaurs. Pretty much all the adult characters were done the same way with the same type of technology. Oh, yeah. Actually, that would be, this was what, 92, 93? That would be about the same time as the dinosaurs, yeah. Yep, 1992. Yeah, one of the first Muppet films without Jim Henson at the helm. It was actually actually quite good. Uh, Again, this is, I, I don't really have a lot of negatives, in my opinion, for all of the whole set that we watched for these Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. Um, this one specifically, I, I love the, the the Muppet tunes that they do. I think the music in this one is great. Um, oh, yes. Doing, you know, they're, hello, mister. Oh, we're not paying for it, but... <laughs> the the song is titled scrooge Uh, okay okay all right this is this is this is ditaku's gun to your head moment i haven't done this in a while so the gun's a little bit rusty gun to your head what's your favorite song from this movie all right all right i love those i love the the way they did um the 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 marley brothers that is a good one. one those those guys um some of my favorites it's even with the uh in the in the original muppet show uh, Those are good. Oh, yes, yeah, uh, Stellar sketches. Yeah. They're, they're always just entertaining. Oh yes. Also, props if you caught the joke between Jacob and Robert or Bob Marley. Yeah, that joke was definitely done intentionally. <laughs> All right. What about you, Clockwork? I can't remember the name. I think it's the one you're talking about. Screws is the one at the beginning when they're introducing. You know, when they're introducing the character. Uh, that one stuck in my head the most. I just didn't. I just don't know the the name of the actual song. It's called Scrooge. It is called Scrooge. Yes, that was the one that stuck with me the most. All right, there, Professor. What about you? Uh, definitely, it feels like Christmas. The song that the Ghost of Christmas Present sings. Also, I want to uh, say is that the, my next the the one that was really close to it that stuck in my head more was also the Ghost of Christmas Present. The the kind of jolly and the dancing and all the everything. And it's mostly because uh, mon- I think it's a uh, monster. Monster, the the guy who plays the drums all the time. I'm sorry, I don't know my puppets all that well. Animal, thank you, Animal. Yes, he was in there too. I like uh, that. That whole showcase, I think, was also really, really good. Oh, at Fozzie Wiggs' uh, Christmas party. Yes, 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 exactly. I'd have to say also Scrooge. I know that's kind of a normie choice now, but I mean, when I think of the film, that's one of the songs I think of immediately. And it's just, I think it's a good song too, because of how evocative it is of Scrooge's character. And it also really bookends the film with uh, his, the song that Michael Caine sings at the very end, where instead of, you know, everyone literally talking about how much they just hate and despise and don't like Scrooge. And then the end song, you know, um, the love we found. No. Yeah. is all about, you know, he, how, He's just, he's like, yeah, I have a, a weight lifted off my shoulders. I, you know, everyone, I, I try to, you know, help everyone and love everyone. Yeah, he, he starts with a thankful heart and they transition into the love we found. Yeah. Which brings me to my obligatory movie trivia. There are two cuts to this film. There is the theatrical cut and there is the home video cut. The theatrical cut is includes the song, The Love is Gone, from the Ghost of Christmas Past segment. If you did not see the woman sing during the breakup scene, you probably just saw a very sudden breakup in Rizzo crying for no reason. 
in the true version of the film, she sings a full musical number, which gets its refrain repeated in The Love We Found at the end of the film when Scrooge becomes better than his word, as the narrator so eloquently put it. Mama Ditaku, this is like one of her films that she loves to to play. So I, I grew up basically watching this every Christmas and uh, it's, 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 it still holds up. So do you, you guys have any other thoughts? It's really, really good. The thing with it though, is I don't have a lot to say about it because it's, it's a Christmas carol. It's you, if you've seen one, you've seen a lot of them. Um, this has its own take on it. On it, it's still really, really good. I like. I've never actually watched this, and I watch it, and I have to. And this is probably going to go on the shelf for next Christmas because it was because that's how good I felt it was. But the thing is, though, is you've seen one, you've seen a lot of them, so the story is kind of the. Uh, I don't know. Like I said, my main beef with a lot of them is if you've actually read the book, a lot of them are very, very tame with how they handle the ghosts and how they handle the horror element. Because, I mean, to put it in none too subtle terms, and they kind of sort of skate around this, and Scrooge is guilty of this as well, Scrooge. The entire point with the Marley and Marley sequence is that they are literally being dragged out of hell and going, look, if you don't change you're going to go to hell like us and you are going to be tortured for all eternity it is is literally them trying to scare people straight and unfortunately because our you know culture is not really christian anymore it it's hard to have that parable with the same weight except that you know it's a really good story but they try to steer it away from that but it's like it doesn't really work if you do that I mean I think this I think this version of the Marley and Marley was uh I mean it wasn't exactly scary but it did get the point across pretty well with you know oh as your as your greed grows the chains around you start getting thicker and tighter and that kind of thing so I think I think it might not show like, you know, the full extent, but I did. I feel like it got the point across a bit more. Oh, yeah. Here's another fun yeah. bit of trivia for you. In the soundtrack version of Marley and Marley, there's another stanza that's not performed in the film version. Uh, and also to be, begin the song, they quote the original novel verbatim. Let's see if I can do this. It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, he is condemned to do so after death, to witness what he cannot share, but might have shared and turned to happiness. Browsing 19th century Christian theology, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, pretty much. Well, it still is a good, it's a good moral. It's a good story. I mean, the fact that we're still talking about it 200 years later, <laughs> I think proves that. 200 years later, that's, man, I'm a lot older than I thought I was. <laughs> Well, it's about a hundred and it's, it's about a hundred and no, actually. Hey, hang on. Let, let, let's, uh, let's science this. The original novel was written and published in 1843. Okay. So about 180 Charles years, Dickens yep. was a great writer, which explains why, I mean, it, it's, it's a classic. It's why it has been done. Like we've talked about, there's, there's a ton of versions of A Christmas Carol. Literally one just came out like last year. Mm-hmm. I think I know what the one you're talking about is. I never actually watched it myself, but uh, I think I I remember it was something the around last Andy Christmas. Circus. It uh, it does definitely play more on the horror elements, but it kind of takes it a little bit to be a bit much with like dead baby corpses floating around and stuff. And it's it's uh, more of a weird psychological wackadoo version of it. it I was not very entertained by it. <laughs> 
you know, it's it's a very interesting thing how Andy Circus always has like weird body horror and like disgusting, creepy old people in his movies that he does. I don't know, maybe he's cursed because he was originally Gollum. That was like the role that Brooke, yeah. you know made him. But no, <laughs> I, I love Muppets Christmas Carol. I I love the Muppets. Um, I grew up, you know, watching the Muppet Show. And this this is just one of the, a lot of these movies are just movies that I just end up watching every year for Christmas. I, I think it's a classic and, uh, you know, belongs on your Christmas shelf. I do definitely agree. I'm actually really surprised, Professor, that you don't have this film. We actually had to look it up. I, I am shocked. Yep. Actually, uh, my parents, my parents own the copy. I thought I had one. I do not. I am deeply ashamed and I will rectify this. How much of a Muppet's head you are, I am legitimately shocked. I'm not even, like, this is not... I, I actually, okay, confession time, since this is a time of forgiveness and, and, you know, reaching out to those who are, you know, disabled in different ways. I actually thought Muppets from Space was okay. You know what? You know what? Even though I really don't like 90s Muppets where they tried to make... they, they Where they tried to make Clifford a thing and, like, Rizzo and Gonzo were, like, in everything and were central, I forgive you. <laughs> because your taste is awful, but it's okay. We'll we'll make that a joke later. You this this is this is because it's going to be like eight months into the future. Oh wait, no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, wait, wait, wait four months. It'll make sense then. <laughs> wait four months. Oh, <laughs> It'll make my. sense then. Uh, uh, Snack will go on trial for his bad taste. The time, the time continues. Getting all confused now. <laughs> yeah, the time. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm going to get you know Doctor Who to come in and be like, "Stop screwing things up." <laughs> but yeah. So, shall we move on then? All right. So it's ironically another Christmas Carol adaptation. <laughs> yeah. It was. It was another. I mean, there's. There's. That's what we can say. Just the, the story of A Christmas Carol. It's a timeless classic. It's been done a bunch of times. This one was my choice. It stuck out to me. I saw it when, when I was a young kid and when I was just like a huge raving Bill Murray fan and like because I loved Ghostbusters. And this is a more modern take on Scrooge, obviously. Like Bill Murray, who's playing a big TV executive named Frank Cross, and he it's funny going back watching this because I didn't realize how ahead of its time. Cause when I watched Bill Murray in the beginning of this movie, I immediately think of like all the stuff we complain about with like modern, like HBO, you know, and like TV producers where he's like, you fools, you know, he's like, we have to, they have to be so scared to watch it. And like, he does his, his, his commercial version of like a Christmas Carol. And he's like acid rain and murder and blood. And then, and then, you know, you have Bobcat Goldthwait who, who is showing up and he's just like, uh, sir, sir, don't you think it's a little bit much, you know? And, and it's, it's a different take on it. It's, it's basically a Christmas Carol. Um, the ghost, some of the ghosts are treated different. Like they are in just about every version. Um, it's, I will admit a lot of the jokes are a bit dated um, because if you're not as versed with a lot of Bill Murray's back catalog, you might miss a lot of the jokes like with the golf balls and things like falling out of his partner's head and then or the, the scene where he's spitting out the golf balls. And obviously it's a reference to Caddyshack, uh, certain jokes, for example, his impression at the homeless shelter was you know, a direct reference of Bill Murray doing an impression of 
Richard Burton from like 1975. I don't think a lot of kids are going to get that at all. Uh, the scene where, you know, they're in the restaurant and the, the waiter like catches on fire and he chucks the bucket of ice at him. He's like, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I thought you were Richard Pryor. And, you know, unless you know who Richard Pryor is, unless you know anything about that stand up comedy, like it, it's not going to make as much sense. But it's, this was just, it was a version that I saw when I was a kid. I, I love Bobcat Goldthwait and Bill Murray. And it's like just Bill Murray being, this was one of the last movies I felt like he was like really like energetic in, which is a shame, but. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, according to Harold Ramis, um, filming with Murray is incredibly yeah. difficult. And he mentioned that in the filming of Groundhog Day, they literally filmed the movie backwards so that he would be at his like most energetic and happy at the end of the movie and be like angry and miserable for real by the time they got to the earliest parts. And this one parts. was actually directed by Mr. Richard Donner, who, of course, we know from like the Superman films and stuff like that. Yeah, that was surprising. I, I Okay, all right. If this is time for confessional, uh, Tomodachi Bros, I have sinned. Uh, I, I have to say when I watch this for the, you know, I watch this. I actually thought that Bobcat Goldthwait was actually Rick Moranis <laughs> putting on an act. So please forgive me. <laughs> I t- it took me a while to realize it was somebody else. I, I, I immediately noticed I'm sorry. Bobcat. My, my wife's favorite, uh, my, my, her favorite slapstick films of choice are um, the Police Academy films. And, and Bobcat's a big part of that. I, I have not actually seen those, although I, when we were talking about other movies we should do, I did say we should watch the Naked Gun films, which I think are related to those, aren't they? They had some crossover between them, but I don't know if it was like the same production company. I'd have to check. I remember, I remember Police Academy being pretty funny, but it's been a while on that one. Uh, I mean, honestly, I thought it was kind of interesting how, once again, yeah, this is very much more uh, – horror oriented. Yeah, I like how his partner is literally falling apart while he's threatening him with like, I was supposed to, you know, humanity was supposed to be my project, not the miniseries. And he, you know, is about to throw him out of the window, except his arm falls off and you can see all his bones and everything. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That. He's where he's like shooting at him and he's like, you know, you could, I don't mind if you hit me, but go easy on the Bacardi. <laughs> <laughs> that one got me pretty good. It is very interesting how it is also very, uh, you know, puts a little toe into uh, postmodernism because it's it's very self-aware. Frank, like almost immediately is like, oh, I'm in a Christmas Carol situation. Okay, so there's going to be the ghosts and everything. And he like is immediately on the watch for like who is going to be the ghosts leading to some pretty good uh, slapstick. Like especially, yeah, like you were talking about, Cog, the uh, the situation in the uh, restaurant where he douses the one uh, waiter. But um, I mean, I don't know. I thought it actually was a little bit rushed as time was going on. Like, I appreciate the fact that it's a slow burn and we can kind of see how Frank goes through his day and how he basically treats everyone awfully. But they shove a lot of stuff in the beginning. But that means that by the time we get to, like, the ghost of Christmas present, and they, they, they had this one thing where she's just, like, beating the crap out of him. And I was like, is this just, I mean, I, I get it. I get it. You know, you know, slapstick comedy, literally slapstick, but it ruins it because like, by the time we get to, you know, the ghost of Christmas future and he's like, okay, okay, buddy, I don't have a time. Get, get out there and see yourself getting burned, you know, getting cremated. It's like, he's 
what maybe three minutes with the ghost of Christmas future. Yeah, it, it's not, not very. Long he at all. spends most of his time with past and present. I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, um, in the, I mean, to compare the two films, like in uh, Muppet Christmas Carol, uh, Scrooge actually. You know, he's sent to the future. He sees like the the uh, the hooligans who like stole stuff out of his house and, you know, cackling about what they got and, you know, how much they hate the tenant. And then they see people wandering around commenting on the fact that he died before he actually is like, oh, my God, I died. They're talking about me. No one cares. And yet we're like barely like, oh, oh, but it's my brother. Oh, Oh, don't burn me. And it's like, oh, oh, that sequence is entirely over. I have to agree was uh, is like it, in like a lot of the other Christmas Carol movies, you have this perspective of, of a couple of different people. Generally, this one particularly is just one scene of his brother and I think his brother's wife or something like that. And he realizes he's in the casket. He's the one who's going to get burned earned, and is and it's over like that. The past, and the present, they go through kind of like, you know, he goes to his his household or in the past, he goes to his household and everything, just his parents, and, you know, that little scene. Although, and then the present, I think the present takes the most of the time because he goes through, like, he goes to his secretary and his and her old family. Then he goes to his brother and his and his family. And then it goes, I think it goes somewhere else. I can't think of all the top of my head. But the present has the most because I feel like they're trying to set it like, you know, he's such a, he's such a dick here and now, but in the, and, the past, you know, a, I don't want to say a good kid, but he was just a kid. So they, there's not a lot of, they could have, it seems like they wanted to go through besides mostly the present. Cause all, especially because for all the slapstick happens where I laughed more because for some reason slapstick gets me that way. <laughs> mm. uh, not to say that the I mean, film's it, it bad. has its, I always actually felt it was kind of slow in the middle when you hit the, the present part, but I've always found, I, I don't know. I've always still found it quite funny. I, I, I mean, the draw for this version, cause it's like, You've already seen a bunch of other Christmas Carol versions, and the, I mean the main the main draw for this is if you know it's that classic like Bill Murray like deep cut like comedy when before he ended up going into like really like weird independent films. I agree. I think that this is honestly uh, that that really is the treat here is that he does kind of have that very you know it's the the Bill Murray touch, especially so. with his the, the the final monologue of this movie where he's doing his big speech at the end before they break into um, the song uh, was completely improvised by by Murray. He did it completely wow. off the cuff. Now that that's impressive. I did not know that. But yeah, I mean, is this going to be a film that I'm like, I'm going to be like, oh man, I'm going to watch Scrooge again. I'm like, eh, probably not. But it, I mean, it's a good film. And if you're a Bill Murray fan, you know, I, I can definitely like, yeah, no, this is worth it. But yeah, he has that eighties, the eighties SNL energy. Uh, and that was really refreshing. And it was definitely the fact that the main character of a Christmas Carol setup kind of story was aware of the Christmas Carol setup actually lends itself really well. Like there's the scene in the elevator when he's with the ghost of the future and he opens the robe and there's like these like demons inside screaming at him and he just closes the robe very calmly yeah. and just a beat <laughs> and then he opens it up again and he's like, wow, that's yeah. impressive. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of which, actually, I really like the fact that they decided to have for his, uh, the ghost of Christmas future's uh, face, he had like a mm -hmm. TV screen. 
Because like his face would actually change depending on the, as the scene I, I went. Think the, yeah, the, the Ghost of Christmas Future actually it was really cool, which is I think why you want to see more of him at the end. I, mm-hmm. I laugh myself silly with this every time. It has its weaknesses, but it's it's one that I again I watch it every year, and uh, I always find like the little nuances of it, and it's it's just a, it's a it's another silly rendition of a Christmas Carol. I might have to watch it again. I'm gonna be perfectly honest. I did like my my part. I laughed at the most was the slapstick, just because for some, like I said, for that that got me that got me kind of good, just from how serious the movie was for. And I I got the humor and I got a good amount of the humor, but I just didn't like I didn't really get a chuckle or anything out of me. I was just kind of like, eh, all right. The the wordplay jokes are really quickly quickly exchanged, and uh, part of it we actually had the subtitles on, which helped a little bit. I have to say that the, the Pratt Falls were really, really well done. Um, I particularly liked his exchanges with the ghost of the past. Like the ghost of the past warps through the door. He like walks face first into it. And then he's like, the head pops back to the door. Oh, yeah. It's like, ha you thought that was going to work. Didn't you idiot? And just, stuff like that worked really well. Yeah. <laughs> it works every time. I thought it was pretty funny. And we, we, I laughed a few, a bunch of times, but, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to send you to bad taste jail for this one, Cog. This this was a very <laughs> solid pick. Yes, absolutely. It, I, I don't know. It's just maybe it's because it's, this wasn't one of the ones that I kind of grew up with. But I, I mean, I, I understand why you really like it. So, yeah, definitely, definitely good. Oh, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm in the, the bad taste jail, too. I think we all are <laughs> at some point or another. We, we, we all are at one point or another. There's a lot of prisons and jails in the Tomodachi Bros. Apparently, someone has <laughs> condemned one of the other bros on many different occasions. I think we're we're all we're all in there by now. <laughs> all right. So, anything else we should uh, we can say about Scrooge? No, it was it was fun to bite into a new one because uh, I had never seen this before, and and, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, this cool. is my first well, time. Too. I, like I said, I've grew up with this one, and it's it's one I, I go to. It was just one I go to every year. I quite enjoy it i might watch it again but i this one for me didn't didn't click as well as the other ones did personally we're gonna move on this is my my pick and also like one i had to i like to watch every year because uh i will admit this plot is a little bit weak but i'm gonna be entirely perfectly honest part of the reason why i i like this film is because it is literally basically me and my family and I think it's it's like, you know, all these all these Christmas films are always like, oh, gosh, golly gee whiz, mom, I'm here and you're here and dad's here and we're all perfect together. And it's like that is not the way my family ever was. I don't think anyone's family is like that. And if they are, you're kidding yourself. That's absolute bupkis. It's like family is a bunch of weirdos who, you know, fate and genetics decided you're all related and you have to live with each other. And, you know, y'all love each other and you, but y'all drive each other nuts, but you, you know, try to do the best you can. And, you know, I think that, that this film more than any other Christmas film kind of proves that because it's just a bunch of really weird people, but they love each other. They clearly care for each other, but it's just them going through Christmas while they're being really, really weird. And, uh, yeah. This plot, as it is, is basically this nine-year-old boy, Ralph, who is trying to convince his uh, parents in uh, 1950s Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 
to buy him a Red Ryder BB gun. But I mean, as it is, that's kind of ancillary to just a series of vignettes of him and his family and his friends just as they're going through the Christmas season. So this movie for me is like straight up just nostalgia Christmas. Number one, like every Christmas that we have, at least in my house, well, this movie is always playing in the background, even if no one's really watching or not, because we have it on the channel that we'll usually have it on, and it's always running. And number two is like there's a lot of stuff with Ralph that you mm-hmm. that you can that you can relate. There's a lot of relatability in the movie. Like he really wants that Red Ryder BB gun. When I was real little, I really wanted that Nintendo 64 or or that GameCube or something like that. So you would do little things like, hey, this is what you want. Or, hey, oh, my gosh. Well, did you hear that they came out with a new console or something like, you know, it's super cool. Like, like, And then you're like, you're trying to hype it up. Like, you know, if I get this, I won't ask for anything else for Christmas or, you know, it's like the one thing you want. And uh, I mean, unfortunately, where I grew up, there wasn't a lot of snow. There was no snow or anything like that. So, unfortunately, I don't really know about the snow part, but. I mean, just the the ways they the ways they the the relatability of the movie I think draws it in a lot. And for personally, for me, it just it makes it a really nice movie to watch because it just you get a lot of nostalgia. Like even if it's not directly relatable, uh, directly it's a lot of nostalgia bombing in my in my opinion in my in in the feels. All right, Professor Cog, what about you? You guys are being this awful is quiet. the flip side for me. Um, I didn't really Christmas story was always that weird movie that was on TV that I always just caught bits and pieces of um, that. I never really bothered to watch all the way through. I know that's, I guess, a Christmas film sin because it's like one of the movies that everyone watches. Every year. So I, I, I don't get the, the feelings of nostalgia from it that a lot of other people do. This was actually one of the first times I watched it all the way through in decades and it's it's an all right movie it definitely has some weird plot elements i think the funniest part for me is at the end of the film um a lot of the stuff at the beginning like i I get why people um you know obviously identify with it it was always just that weird movie about with the leg lamp and I'd, i'd never quite uh connected with any of that but Ralphie is, you know, he's he's super easy for a lot of young boys to relate, you know, when you have that one thing that you want and you're trying to like manipulate your parents or you know at a young age which which is, you know, super easily relatable. I I get thrown off cuz man there's a lot of screaming and crying in the beginning of this movie. And then I feel like I enjoy the second half of the movie better. I mean, despite the flaws, it's it's an enjoyable movie. I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I enjoyed it. My favorite scenes of the movie are the the final mall scenes when he goes into the mall and is like waiting to see Santa, and everybody's like losing their mind over Santa. And there's the kid with the goggles just actually like hit me. I just I literally laughed at at, at that one where where he's like standing in line and he's got the kid like. I like Santa <laughs> with, with like the goggles on him and, and, he, and Ralphie's just like, oh, okay. And he's just keeps talking to him. And then the scene where he finally gets like kicked down the slide. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's another Christmas classic. Um, it wasn't one that I grew up with, but I mean, it's, it's still, uh, it's, it's entertaining. Uh, I'm in a similar camp to Mr. Cog. It's, it reminded me a bit of, of a holiday version of My Neighbors, the Yamadas, 
And if you haven't seen it, it's not really one continuous storyline. It's a series of vignettes that happen to star the same family. And while it is largely laced around the holiday season, it's not really one continuous story, as said. It's, it's well, there's the, the, the BB gun uh, plot line that comes up from time to time. But then it's interrupted with, oh, the father, you know, is a curseaholic <laughs> par excellence. And then it's the, the trouble the boys have with the bullies. And I had seen um, very, very short clips from this film. Uh, the tongue stuck on the post, the kid being kicked down the slide, the oh fudge moment and, and all that. I, I had seen those out of context. And honestly, I'm just going to say for, for anyone who's in my position who still hasn't seen this movie, despite it being all this time uh, up until now, context doesn't really change much no, of that. But at the same time, you get this interesting story from this young boy's perspective where the story really is about the young boy's perspective. He is really into guns. He thinks the gun is cool. And, you know, he has to deal with, with very mundane issues, but in his head, he's like, imagines them as being so much more um, <laughs> like uh, one of the first uh, fantasies he has is this uh, little house on the prairie kind of moment where the family is dressed up like frontiersmen. And he's like this weird rhinestone cowboy shooting the bad guys with his BB gun. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it's just immensely entertaining. And because it's done from the kid's perspective, you, you get a very, even though the family is deeply flawed, you get a very wholesome look at them. Mm -hmm. And because there comes a time when the, he is bullied so much, he finally snaps and he just tears into the bully, <laughs> just goes completely <laughs> ape on him. And when his mother catches him, he is just like, I'm dead. This is the end of the line. I, I'm just going to be killed, and, and that will be the end of my life. And they just kind of like, oh, well, I mean, there was a fight, but that threw it's me not for a, big a loop. Deal. Yeah, because the kid's like bleeding on the ground. <laughs> and they, she just kind of shows up and is like, let's go. And he's just, you know, laying there. But uh, <laughs> just before she like loses her mind. And they do the soap scene mm -hmm. where it's like, do you know what your son just said? And then it, I, I don't know. It, it was just kind of a weird flip of like she, he says it, he says a curse word once earlier on. And then at the and then in that scene where it's he's supposed to be he's like he literally says, I was saying all the bad things were coming out of my mouth or whatever. And then and suddenly she's she's like, you know, super compassionate. I mean, I there's a bit of context, I think, between those two scenes. I think they make a really interesting juxtaposition. Uh, in the initial case, um, it was a very mild incident, the dropping the nuts on the snow, and his reaction was very out of character, or, or so it seemed, despite the fact that he very obviously heard his father say that word many, many, many times. Yeah, that's, that, that is a thing. Um, but then, when, when it finally gets down to the bullying, there's no way they didn't know. So eventually, a young man has to put his foot down and stand up for himself, and well, if, if the adrenaline pushes you into to, you know monkey mode, yeah, I, I, so I, I get it. that. I get that. And seeing that severe, that severe emotional reaction probably helped remind the mom that he's a human too. Um, it's a really interesting scene, and actually, Dutaku comments on this as we were watching. 
um, after she washes his mouth out with soap, and he has a, a very amusing uh, aside about that as well, uh, she actually puts the soap in her own mouth just to see what it's like, mm-hmm. to see what she's doing to him. And I'm like, this shows a lot of human depth and warmth. And like, like I said, it, it is a little disjointed in some ways because there is no real plot per se. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's just this kind of wholesome family film. I think the plot movement is the stories in themselves. It's the stories of the kids' memories going from like scene to scene kind of thing. I think that's what they're trying to go for more, which is why it's more like little skits here and there than more of, you know, a good giant, like a big coherent plot line, Um, which I mean, I mean, I didn't bother me as much because I kind of understand what they were going for or because I mean, the whole thing is done with the the, the narrator of the kid as a, as an older adult remembering everything. So it's not like he's not going to remember every single piece of thing, thing that kind of went, kind of went around. No. Yeah. And I actually think that's really brilliant, actually, because you, you, you get the young kid's perspective and then you have the adult version where he's like, well, I knew good and well, but because I was a kid, this is how I reacted. And, you know, he, he literally almost indeed shoots his eye out in the, you know, I guess, I guess what could be construed the climax of the film. Mm-hmm. And his mom's just like, yeah, yeah, that's that's. That's fine. You're okay. And what matters is that he lies to her and is like, I know I'll lie and and say it was like an icicle fell on me or something. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess I'm on the opposite end of the coin from our last film then, because uh, I mean, talking about relatability, gentle listeners, if you want to know what a Ditaku looked like when he was nine years old, basically, I was literally. Ralphie. I was a short, little, gangly, weird-looking, little, pale, blonde kid with huge Coke bottle glasses. And basically, I looked like that up until about 12 years old, at which point I became a really tall, gangly, pale, blonde, weird kid with glasses. And I met two other weird, you know, weird kids. And, well, I'm now in a podcast with them. So uh, I guess I can't escape these weirdos. Uh, you went from Ralphie to Krusty. Basically. Um, I'm not I'm not as swole as Krusty yet, though. But uh, I think partially my problem was I had really weird uh, glasses designs when I was a little kid. I, I can literally uh, like the entire sequence with um, like the, with the cursing and with uh, the, the bully. I mean, I never got bullied because I was always, you know, I was always just kind of no one really cared to bully me, but people bullied my little brothers. And my father was always a case of like, if someone's messing with your brothers, you have to, you know, join in. And my mother absolutely hated violence to the point that she, once again, she never gave me a toy gun. And so I, you know, it's a case of it's like, oh, it's a little kid. He, he wants to get a gun. His mother doesn't want him to have a gun. He's got this weird little brother, you know, and he has to like, you know, stand up for his weird little brother. And, you know, he has to take on a bully. And there's this entire thing where his just his father's constantly cursing and he gets in trouble for it. I mean, that same thing with me. And yet, once again, like when I got, when I actually fought off the bully that was messing with my little brothers, I mean, it was the same thing. It's like this woman who absolutely hated violence, even to the point that I never got like a Nerf gun or anything. She's like, no, you did the right thing. You protected your little brothers. 
even though you were mouthing off the entire time to this guy, you did the right thing. And so, yeah, it's there is kind of a, a judgment gap in their cog, and I, I completely agree with you. But I mean, the fact that I that the mom kind of stands up for Ralphie, and I think just kind of shows that yes, even though it's kind of against a lapse in her like morals or whatever. I think it shows, you know, her her judgment or the fact that she does deep down. Or I mean, not even deep down. She generally does care for her sons. So, I mean, I, I will freely admit I am incredibly biased towards this film because of those reasons. Like a lot of the things that, that Ralphie has to deal with, that was the way my family was. Uh, it's, it still is. I mean, it's not like any of them are, are sauntered off the mortal coil yet. No, God willing. But, um, you know, it's so I will freely admit that part of that is why I like it. And I've watched this film pretty much every year since I can remember. I mean, I know that that's part of it is that nostalgia. And I mean, also, to a certain extent, it's the, the timeless quality of it, even though it's supposed to be a period piece in the 1950s. I don't think they really bring like a, a lot of attention to it, which uh, I thought was really cool. And it probably is why people are still you know, uh, watching it, even though it's almost 40 years old now. So yeah, go ahead. You can put me in bad, bad taste jail. I will accept this, but I really enjoy this film. And um, I'm glad that, you know, at least I, I, uh, Mr. Snack, at least appreciates it in spite of the fact that he didn't really grow up with it like I did. I mean, I'll be right next to you in that, in that bad taste jail oh, as I well. Mean, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. It's, it's definitely an entertaining, you know, movie. It's, uh, it's just, like I said, I didn't have the same, connection yeah. to it i think no i get you i mean you also you also got to appreciate as you're talking about his little uh his little imagination scenes how over the top and crazy those they are. are great too yeah i forgot about those like the one the the one the one that wasn't mentioned already was the one where uh after he eats the soap he thought he you know that, he was wondering that if, scene like, is great yeah the soap was going to make him blind or something. So he comes in walking with the coat and a cane and everything. And it's like, Oh my gosh, what happened to him? He has a cane. Oh my, like everyone's just like over the top crazy. And he's just kind of, that, that scene is great too. <laughs> uh, I think those, those are easily two of my favorite scenes in the movie that others, I, I had almost forgotten about that in his, uh, in his dream sequences are, are, are pretty entertaining. Also, the uh, the one where he has a Red Ryder BB gun, he's always spitting, like in all of the West movies. Is was always a, was a kind of a nice touch too. Like, uh, like every scene he spit, he like spits. It's uh, because they always because uh, they show it, and then every time he hits one of the little robbers who are dressed in striped black and white t-shirts and in black pants like they're like they're just generic like robbers you see like a really old movie and like the you know the the beanie and everything and the mask he shoots them all but <laughs> and when he piles them up they all have red x's drawn on their eyes like they're dead in quote <laughs> as well it's like all these little touches is just it's 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 hilarious it's amazing and hilarious at the same time all righty gents i mean there's not really any music to speak of in this film mood pieces mostly but there's no like yeah no real music or anything Thank anything guys, else so much for tuning in to our very yeah. tomodachi christmas special um we hope you enjoyed 
And if you'd like to hear more of me, Clockwork Fiction, uh, you can tune into twitch.tv slash Clockwork Fiction, where I play a lot of video games. Uh, hopefully, by the time this comes up, I will have started streaming again. I'm just I was getting off a couple of internet issues and stuff like that. Been playing a lot of Final Fantasy since that the new patch came out. I'll probably play a lot of other games. Like uh, I like to, I've been getting more into the fighting game now since a lot of those went on sale, especially for the Christmas sale coming up and everything. So tune in for that as well. Oh, we're gonna try and do do a collab. Maybe get Mister Cog in on your stream as well because we're we've been playing uh, 14 with him as well. And so, I believe Mister cool. Schneck is streaming now too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am. It's not mm-hmm. regularly scheduled just yet. We're working on the details. Look forward to that. And uh, there is now an open Ask Me Anything thread on my YouTube page and my Twitter feed at Hipster Snack, where you guys can ask me anything as much as you'd like. Age, sex, <laughs> location. Uh, old enough to know better, young enough not to act on it. Uh, sex, yes, please. <laughs> and location, a faraway world in a land where <laughs> monsters rule. Nice. Thank you. That was very prompt. All Merry right, Christmas. ladies and gentlemen. Happy New Year. We will see you guys next time. See you in 2021. Later. Oh, God, 2021. The dragons are coming. Auf Wiedersehen. Thank you for listening to the Tomodachi Brothers Review Podcast, produced and recorded by The Hipster Snack, Ditaku, and Cog. Sound design and editing by executive producer Sean Taylor Brown with Cog Sound Engineering. Music written and performed by Sean Taylor Brown with Costas Voss of Core Insight Studio on the drums. We hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tomodachi Bros Anime Podcast. I'm one of the co-founders and co-hosts of the podcast, The Hipster Snack. If you want more content from me, I have my own YouTube channel, The Hipster Snack. Links will be available everywhere I can spam it up until I get a custom one, but all in due time. I do weekly game reviews, and in the future, probably more than that. Look forward to it, and I'll see you there and on Twitter, at Hipster Snack. See ya!